The Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, my distinguished listeners, and welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. I am extremely excited about my guest today, as I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. My guest today is Shaolin Fulov. As you'll soon find out, there are so many amazing things about Shaolin that it's hard to put into words. You'll hear the word hustle over and over in this conversation, but I don't think that one word alone characterizes her. Shaolin is a mother, a coach, a technology executive, having spent about 17 years at Google, and she's now with Lyft, a competitive runner, having raced at Stanford University and later competed in the Olympic trials for the marathon, and both a pre-viver, I love that word, a pre-viver and survivor of cancer. This conversation is motivating, emotional, inspiring, and energizing, and I really believe after you listen to this interview that you'll all walk away feeling uplifted and empowered. That said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Shalyn Fulop. Shalyn, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's just start with you're awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm so excited for the audience to hear your story. But I mean, seriously, a mom, an athlete runner, successful career in tech with Google for 17 years, which we'll get into. And I know you're now with Lyft a previvor and survivor of cancer. There's so much we're going to get into today, but I did want to start with something fun I found out that really, I think, captures at least your work ethic in one word, and that is the word hustle. <laughs> Hustled your way into your first job at Google and would love to hear about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, my dad used that word a lot growing up, so I think it just became ingrained. Yeah, I'd like to tell a story how I joined Google through some, some hustle. I was working as a barista downtown Palo Alto on University Avenue shortly after uh, one of the first tech bubble bursts. I had just moved back from a year abroad and I decided that I was going to bring in my resumes, like a stack of resumes when I was in at my job as a barista making coffees. And I would hand out a resume with every latte that I made and just talk up the clientele thinking that that location probably had a lot of good job prospects. So yeah, I would talk up the clients. I'd hand out a resume with every latte. And one day my resume landed on a Googler's latte and there I went for the next 17 years. I love it. Now, I which coffee shop was it? So right now it's called Cafe Venetia. Yeah. But okay. it was Cafe Torfazioni before that. Right, right. So I have to admit, I'm a fellow former barista. My first, I was actually in high school. I was Pete's and, and also Starbucks. And I remember, you know, those days, it really was the first time I learned about people, to be honest. And, you know, you come in and you literally would get the, the craziest request and all you could say was yes. Right. And that really, I remember, it, I mean, you'd have someone come in and say, you know, I want a half decaf mocha, but if you could spin the mocha from left to right and not right to left, I mean, just, <laughs> but it really taught me about how yes. to deal with, you know, people. I just wanted to share that I'm a fellow barista. <laughs> ah, we can empathize. I hear you on that for sure. Yeah. Good customer support, customer service skills. Yeah, exactly. So 
Before we get into your career in life, I like to ask guests like yourself uh, how you start your day. Do you have any habits, routines, structure on on how you start your morning? Speaking of coffee, actually. (laughs) Right, right. I've been trying to be better about not doing coffee like the first thing in the morning. I think as 2020 per, like got towards the end, it was like I got up and that was like the first thing on my mind. So I'm trying to have a little bit more intentional start. Water is a big part yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting with water, but I started, I mean, I, I have a young daughter who has been at home doing homeschool with remote learning. So that definitely has like added a new component to the morning, but I try to wake up and do some movement. And more recently, I think also just trying to be more intentional. I've started to do a lot more yoga in the morning, or if I have to get my run in during the morning before the day gets too hectic. But I think it's important for me to carve out some quiet moments to just be more centered. And so sometimes that's a hour run with a friend um, to just carve out some time for myself before the day gets the better of me. Or this morning I did 20 minutes of, of yoga before I got my coffee and got into my emails. Now, now um, running is a big part of your life. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to get through that in this conversation. But part of your morning, it sounds like, is not an automatic run in the morning. Do you switch it up morning, noon, afternoon? Is that on purpose? It's not on purpose. It's a lot dictated by whatever I have on tap that day, depending on how many meetings I have at work, depending on what my daughter's schedule is. The main thing I try to achieve is that I have some time for myself during the day. And oftentimes that's at the bookends and, you know, the theory of pay yourself first. I often do wake up about 30 to 60 minutes before my daughter, just to kind of enjoy that really quiet stillness in the house. So we did get a dog last February. So that has been a new component of the routine. So she needs to go out in the morning. So that's actually been very nice for me um, to slow down and just do more neighborhood walks and to not just be go, 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 knowing that I need to kind of get out and, and take care of the dog. And so um, yeah, movement in the morning, and, and really that's intended to just give myself some of my own time and space. What kind of, uh, we'll go off tangent, what kind of dog? Because we did the the COVID puppy also in, uh, in October. <laughs> she is a mini Labradoodle. Oh, yeah. We did the mini Golden Doodle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you would probably do a long break. Yeah, she's just 13 pounds of sweetness, and um, she's the perfect carry-on size for our trips to Colorado, where we um, we go often. So Yeah, ours is 20 pounds of kind of a pain in the ass, but it's still, it's, 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 been, a lot, it's been a lot of fun, I will say. So I want, I want to continue on running. Take me back. I believe you grew up in the LA area. But take us back there, and then I believe uh, that took you to, to Stanford back up in Palo Alto, correct? It did, yeah. I've been running competitively since I was very young. I joined my first team with a uniform when I was five years old. My mom and dad were incredibly athletic, and my mom used to push me and my brother up to the local college, Cal State North, in a stroller before there was baby like do- baby joggers. Like This was just a, like a four-wheel like clunker. And then we would play in the long jump pit. I thought it was a sandbox for the kids <laughs> whose moms were running around the, around the track. And then, you know, as you have it, you're like, oh, you want to be like mom. And so I started running like a half lap with her here and there. And then one day my dad came up and I was like, I can run a whole lap, dad. And um, I did it. And then they happened to have um, kids sign ups that day for kids track. So I signed up then and just got really into it. 
part that's been my primary sport. Although I, I did play other sports in high school, but I found a lot of joy and success and camaraderie in running and was lucky enough to be able to go and run for Stanford after, um, after high school and ran track and cross country for Stanford for four years. So for, for the audience sake, and, and frankly, a little bit for mine, what are you doing or the difference of cross country running versus what you were doing on the track? Oh, sure. So cross country is off track and it's trails and hills and dirt, you know, and a lot of places it's jumping over hay bales and it's just really gritty and the strength, a strength sport, um, but it's, it's team-based. So there's a, you have a team of seven, you score your first five runners. So you're only as fast as your, as your slowest runner. So there's a real team component and camaraderie and it's not as measurable as the track, right? Every course is different, even the same course on a different day, if it snowed or rained or, or didn't. And so it's really wonderful because that's just about your effort and your performance and your competitiveness on that day. And you're running for the other folks on your team. So if someone's having a bad day, your ability to step up lifts everybody else up. And you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about this. I, I coached at Castellet High School for six years, the cross country team. And you know, I really loved coaching cross country because of that team component. And I, I liked coaching track as well, but track's a little bit more linear and it's very measurable, which has its pluses and minuses. Right. And, and distance wise, I know, and we're going to get into the, the marathons, but cross country track, are you going that type of distance or I guess what distances are you running? So in high school and college, so it's about 5k and college, the women now run 6k, the men run 10k. And then obviously on the track, you have everything from hundred meters to 10 K on the track. Got it. Okay. So post Stanford, you're slanging lattes, you get a job at Google. And this was, uh, I believe in 2002, I think that you were hired into Sheryl Sandberg's organization. So I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, working with someone like her, a strong public female uh, executive, and then the other executives that you probably worked with during that 17-year career at Google. Sure. Yeah, Google was really small when we joined. We were a few hundred people. The online sales and operations organization was just starting to, to grow. Cheryl was my skip level manager, and she was starting to grow that organization. And I mean, at the time, you know, you just you knew how great everybody was there, but I think as time goes by, I'm just incredibly, increasingly grateful for all the leaders that I had a chance to work with. And, you know, I think there's a lot of focus on female leadership in tech and in, in business. And I had this great fortune to have so many great female managers and people and female uh, leaders at the highest parts of the organization. And and, and we, you know, we were just talking about running. I, I also had the great fortune to have female coaches, which I think is, you know, not a given and actually the minority for a lot of folks. So I really benefited a lot from that. And at the time, I didn't realize the magnitude of that. And I definitely take that to heart as I move forward and, and how I try to show up for folks on my team and the people that I coach and manage. But, you know, Cheryl, of course, you know, she was she was fantastic. We learned so much about how to grow teams, how to motivate teams how to build for scale. She hired incredible leaders. You know, I had the first few years there, I had all female leaders. And so that just, you can't really put a, a price on how important that is and how much they continue to be mentors for myself today. I just this morning and this week I've been texting and emailing with 
some of my earliest managers at Google that we're still very close with. So, and you know, that organization today is, is huge for Google. And I, a lot of what I learned about how to scale organizations and think globally, I take with me through all the, the parts of my career and, and moving over to a company like Lyft, who's really at an important point of their growth trajectory. It's becoming clear that that's also a really useful tool that I can bring to the teams that I go to going forward. Right. And then the move to Lyft, this was just a handful of months ago, I, I believe. Is that correct? I just crossed my year in October. Oh, a year. Okay. Got it. Great. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I feel like we went like February, you know, pandemic quarantine. Who knows what day it is? Yeah. <laughs> so <I> feel... <laughs> 2020 doesn't count. I got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, congratulations on, on the year there. So let's continue to move forward. So 2005. Uh, I believe was when you were diagnosed with uh, thyroid cancer. I would love to hear kind of your thoughts and and obviously feelings, emotions, all the things that were going on at that time. Sure. I mean, I was really young and healthy and had no idea that this could possibly be something that I would have to deal with. I was at work at Google and I had what felt like like a low blood sugar reaction and so I ran up to the Google Doc, who's now, you know, who, who's who's now my, my personal doc has been my doc ever since. I ran up to the office. I said, "Hey, I'm having this weird thing happen. Can we? Can you help me?" And we ran some tests and a couple more tests, and it looked and it was clear that I was having a, an autoimmune uh, response, and that led to other things. And they discovered a very small tumor in my thyroid. And really heavy day when you get that call. I don't think I remember I was. I was in Los Gatos, which I think maybe yeah. um, where you're based. I was uh, on the way to the gelato shop. Oh, we yeah. just finished bocce yeah. at a team offsite. And <laughs> my doctor called and she's like, do you have a second? And I was like, well, that depends. Do you have good news? Right. And yeah, I mean, I think it's very heavy. Nothing really prepares you for when your doctor calls and says you have cancer. And I took a moment to let that sink in. And and then you, jo- you, know, you just approach it like you do everything else and you you get the best help that you can. You stay as optimistic as you can. I mean, as it turns out, thyroid cancer is the one of the best cancers you can get. It's very slow growing. It's very easy to address. So I had a full thyroidectomy less than a year after that and have been on thyroid replacement ever since. But I've been very healthy and have been able to carry on my life just as if it ever happened. And you know that was before I became a mom. And so I was able to weather that and feel very fortunate about the healthcare that I had access to. I think what's awesome is, you know, shortly thereafter, and I I read this in a a San Jose Mercury News article you did a few years ago, that this happened. The full removal, I think, was mid-year in 2005. And you said, okay, I am going to compete for the 2008 Olympic trials and prove to myself that I'm stronger after this surgery. Uh, and would love to hear about that, you know, I guess a two and a half or so year journey from 05 to 08 to the trials. Yeah, I did. I said to myself, you know, I knew I could get over it, but I wanted to prove to myself that it had really not created any kind of massive detour or whatever life I wanted to live. And so I decided to pick something that seemed like a stretch goal for myself to achieve. The marathon was really outside my wheelhouse. I was much more of a middle distance runner all my life. And the Olympic trials is a really big stage. And um, I had really never been at that stage before. And so I decided that I was going to go for it. And it was a really nice motivator. I mean, I think I really did not have a lot of attachment to the results. It was really the attachment on the journey 
and the effort that it took to be able to put yourself in a position to achieve that result because you really cannot control the day. You can't control how you're going to be on that day. You can't control the weather on that day. All you can do is set yourself up for success, put yourself in the way of opportunity and do your best to execute on that time. And so I knew that I was going to it was going to be a worthwhile endeavor just for that the process of making myself prove to myself that I had overcome this fully. And in my first attempts, or actually I had a couple of failed attempts, but I finally did qualify. I qualified by just about a minute under the qualifier and um, was able to compete at the 2008 Olympic trials. I ended up qualifying again for the 2016 trials, similar, you know, after having a, a child and I wanted to, and prior to going into my next set of surgeries, I wanted to prove to myself that wasn't a fluke, that I could do it. So Now what, again, for the audience, what does that mean to compete for the Olympic trials? What are you doing time-wise? What do you have to do to get over that hurdle? Sure. So the governing bodies set a standard that you have to hit the International Olympic Committee sets a standard, and the USA track and field sets a standard. And so you have to run under a certain time. In 2008, you had to run under 246. Oh my God. <laughs> In 2016, I had to run under, I ran 241.57. I think you had to run under 243. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, in women's marathon running in the United States has gotten incredibly competitive. And so that's why the standards keep coming down. And so you, anybody who hits those standards, are able to compete on the Olympic trials day. Typically it's a few hundred women. And then the top three finishers on that day qualify to make the Olympic team. And so most of the folks in the race are not intended to, are not expecting to make the team, but it's a really big honor to be part of it. And it is an, it is an Olympic team selection process. And so, you know, it's, it's a world-class event that we put together and it is an honor to, to be at both of those. Oh, I'm sure it's, it's amazing. So you alluded to you know, 2008 upcoming surgeries, I believe that brings us to 2014. And that's the previver, if I don't, uh, if I, if I have my notes correct. <laughs> I love that word. Yes. Previver. Yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So same doctor who called me to tell me I had thyroid cancer. <laughs> you have to lose his number. About... That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm never letting her go. She's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this preparing for this interview. It, she called me about 10 minutes before I was about to go on stage at the Google TGIF in front of tens of thousands of employees. To We were celebrating the AdSense 10-year anniversary. I was on the founding team for AdSense, and she called me to tell me that I, have, I had the BRCA or BRCA mutation, which BRCA. Mm-hmm. basically guaranteed that I was going to have... Uh, get breast cancer before, you know, before I was too old. And that's just a huge can of worms of information to sort through decisions to make. And so she gave me that news and I needed to decide on when and if I was going to have a double mastectomy and if I was going to have an oophorectomy, which is an abdomen uh, surgery to remove your ovaries. And my, you know, I, my aunt, who passed away in 2017 from a nine-year fight from ovarian cancer. I mean, she's the reason why I know about this and her courage and vulnerability to share that enabled me to make some really important decisions for me and my family. And you know, I'm grateful for that. But I, I had those surgery. I had double mastectomy, uh, preemptive or prophylactic in 2017. Uh, 2017 was a really tough year 
it's a two surgery process. I had the mastectomies and then about 12 weeks later, you have the reconstruction. And in between that time frame, my dad passed away unexpectedly. And then later that year, my aunt who had the ovarian cancer passed away. So 2017 was a really, really big year for me. And so during that time, I was, I was just trying to come back. I was trying to get healthy. I had, you know, I'm in good health overall. So the doctors are always very happy when they see me on the table. My numbers are good and I recover well. So my first question to them is always, okay, so how long do I have to wait? (laughs) Uh, I mean, it speaks to your, your personality. I just, I'm, you're just, I mean, you quickly went over 2017, which I cannot imagine just the, the emotion uh, all over the place in that year. It must've been incredible for you. It's really emotional. I think I underestimated how emotional the mastectomy and the reconstruction would be. I talked to a ton of doctors and it was one doctor in San Francisco who put it really plainly to me that you need to approach this as if you're having an amputation. And that was really heavy. And that should have prepared me, but it didn't quite prepare me for how I saw myself immediately after surgery. But I've made a full recovery and similar to the thyroid comeback, I continue to just put myself set some goals to say, can you keep coming back? And can you keep pushing and try to achieve something you haven't achieved before? So yeah, I spent, I spent 2017 recovering. I ended up waiting a few years to have my oophorectomy. Last October was my first year anniversary at Lyft. It was also the first year anniversary of my um, abdomen surgery. So I've completed the, the full Ibraca set of surgeries and you know, it's really nice to have that behind me. And, you know, at the time that was 2019, I, who knew, nobody knew that 2020 was going to be what it was. So I, the, I ran the 2016 trials, 2017, I had the uh, double mastectomy. I ended up running the Boston, my first Boston in 2019, which was incredible. And that was, oh my God. Wow. that was really important to me. It was my first surge. It was my first marathon after my mastectomy, after my dad had passed away first since the trials. And so it was just an incredible event. And then later that year, I decided to have the abdomen surgery to um, the, the oophorectomy. And I'm just so grateful for the timing because um, it would have been really challenging to do that in 2020. Yeah. I want to go backwards a little bit because you've mentioned your your father a few times already and obviously the, the unfortunate passing in 2017. But your parents, I mean, frankly, they're real life heroes. And I would love to hear <laughs> a little bit about your parents. And then also, not a lot of people know, because I would think that just seeing you, they would assume you're white, but you are of mixed race. Your your mom was white and your, your father was black and would love to, I mean, especially in 2020, which is such a crazy year. But one major thing that has always been around, but definitely got legs was the Black Lives Matter movement. I would love to hear your dad, your family, your parents growing up. And then also, you know, if the 2020 movement there changed your perspective on anything, especially with your background. Yeah, thanks. Uh, 2020 was very layered and complex time for everyone. I think from my own personal experience, a lot of the things that you mentioned really came to the surface and were really triggering at times. I am, I am mixed. My mom's white. My dad was black. And I l- present very white looking. <laughs> I think a lot of people are surprised. I mean, relative to my siblings, especially. And to just add some complexity to it, both my parents really were real life heroes. My, both my parents were first responders. 
My dad was a firefighter paramedic who flew uh, air operations. Um, so all the wildfires that we did, I mean, I, I would see on the news, his choppers on the news, you know, they would do the water drops, the cliff rescues, um, very dangerous things. And my mom's a retired SWAT commander. So she was in law enforcement my whole life. And so I think on the context of 2020, where were the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the defund the police movement and thinking about my own experience and having a white parent who was in law enforcement, who has had to use lethal force on duty. A lot of complexities there and how I view that and how I think about talking about what's going on to my own young daughter and helping her understand her family and herself and how to navigate what is just, I'm on its own merit, a very complicated set of issues. But there were times that last year when things would come up that were really triggering. Remember from my childhood, you know, like being in Alabama with my dad when I was like 10 or 11 years old was a very, at the time I hadn't, I didn't really have context for what we were going through. But I remember after one public episode at a restaurant, we didn't leave the hotel after that. And I think in the context of 2020 and understanding that better as an adult, I could see so much more clearly now what he was experiencing. You know, he was probably scared for himself, for me. He was probably angry. I think my parents' marriage alone was very controversial at the time. And so, you know, and I've been able to talk to my mom quite a bit about, you know, a lot of what we see in law enforcement and the news. And that's been really helpful too. So, yeah, it really is an amazing background. And then you mentioned hustle, or I mentioned hustle, and you said, wow, you know, that's something my dad said a lot. I mean, it just sounds like throughout your family, that's just like a word that you could imprint on everyone's uh, forehead, so to speak. I mean, it just sounds like it's hustle through and through all around you. Work ethic was everything to my dad, especially, but my mom as well. I mean, they both worked so hard. Nothing was given to them. I mean, I think their relationship made things harder for both of them. And I think my dad just being a black man, you know, in itself has its, you know, challenges that we're all much more aware of right now. And so I think they just instilled in me and my siblings that you need to work hard and talent is great. And, you know, you should definitely work to cultivate that, but there's you work hard work is just a non-negotiable. So I, I have two, um, small kids as well. Well, not small, but they're nine and 11. They're, they're big enough. <laughs> but I would just think that your background and then your story um, with the cancer and then having a young daughter, what was going on through your head, you know, during the time of, of surgeries? How do you manage that having a young daughter? And then your thoughts on being a mother of a daughter that could potentially have some of the same complications, I would think. I mean, that would be going through my head. Yeah. Kids are amazing. They're stronger than all of us, I think. And I think, you know, for my surgeries, my daughter was, was very young. And so I think we just told her that mommy's boobs were sick and that she needed to like have them go to the doctor and the doctor was going to make them better. And, um, and that mommy was going to need some, you know, some help at home for a little while. And so I think, but you know, the, the gap between my mastectomy and the oophorectomy had a lot to do with motherhood. And did I want to have more children? Because that's ultimately inherent in the decision. The oophorectomy means you, you will not be able to have children unless you take steps to 
you know, do it otherwise through a surrogate or otherwise. And that was a really hard decision. I think even the mastectomies too, I think if I was going to have more children, was I going to be able to nurse? Like all of those big decisions. And of course, um, you raised the point, you know, in the back of my mind, the thyroid cancer, the BRCA, um, thinking about how do we make sure she stays healthy and prepared to make decisions for herself. And I feel so grateful for the science and the healthcare that we have access to so that we have this information. It's riddled with imperfection. You know, a lot of the the challenges were that, you know, they have good information, but it's not perfect. And so, you know, you need to just do your best to filter through the information and make the decision that's best for you. But I think you have to start with information. And so I have a really candid conversation or dialogue with my daughter all, all the time about what's going on. And I think if it can be candid and direct, and you can start by listening and asking what they understand already. I mean, it, it makes the conversation a lot more smooth and productive. This last weekend, we sat down and had a dinner and a conversation about what happened last Wednesday at the Capitol to really to help her. You know, we wanted to understand what she was observing and then helping connect the dots and put that into context for her life. You know, I think for kids, if it doesn't immediately impact them, sometimes it feels very far away. But in fact, you know, Wednesday's events at the Capitol obviously affects us all. And so we wanted to help her understand that. So just having a, a direct conversation, keeping it simple and a lot of listening, you know, asking some questions, having them articulate what they understand and then course correcting as needed uh, in an age appropriate way. I learned a valuable trick. I have a, a brother 10 years older, so his kids are older than mine. But he said, when your kids ask why dot, 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 the first thing you say is, why do you think why? And then you get that answer first, and then you can pivot accordingly, right? Instead of just blurting out what you feel you should put, you know, in, in their brain, so to speak. So they're, they're interpreting, you know, all this news and media and the craziness in a different way, for sure. Absolutely. I want to ask, I mean, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, inspired by your story. But what inspires you? I guess, are you a reader besides, you know, running? I, I got to assume a lot of the running is is your therapy, so to speak. But what do you pull for an inspiration? Running is definitely a very meditative time for me. I definitely do better in moving meditations than I do in just stillness, but I need to get better at that. I spend a lot of time trying to do things that are not like in my wheelhouse. So I have I love going to see you know musicians who are just excellent at their craft and get into that flow state and watching them just get into it. And so I spend a lot of time when it's not COVID going to concerts and, and the arts. And I think being able to see someone excel at the highest level in an area that, you know, maybe you wish you could do or um, that is so different than how you normally spend your time and what can you learn from them? How can you take what you see them doing and bring it back into your areas of strength or focus. So, and I just love music in general. So, so when you actually, when you're on these, these runs or workouts, are you, are you listening to music or I guess, do you have anything in the ear? Hopefully my podcast is what I'm going for, but I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Besides the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> right. When I'm running outside, I don't listen to music or books. I do love audiobooks, especially in the car. But um, I will listen to music and podcasts and things when I'm on a treadmill, but I'm not on a treadmill, thank goodness, very often. No, I love running by myself and just being in my, now that's the meditative component. I'm able to really filter a lot of the stuff that's in my brain and come to a lot of answers, if not just con- consciously, but you know, 
if I'm stuck on something or I can't write an email or I can't make a decision, just getting out and moving, you know, somehow works out the kinks and I have a lot more clarity of thought or the answer comes to me more uh, in that way. So I try not to, I try to create, protect that space. A lot of times if I'm running with a friend, well, you know, we talk it all out and it, it really helps as well. So I, when I'm running, I try not to, I try to kind of be screenless or like digital free. It's amazing. You, I mean, after my second mile, I'm not talking anymore. It's just, it's just not happening. <laughs> Focus on breathing and not passing out. I, so when you look back, I mean, I, I've had this question to, to other guests about tipping points. And I don't even know, you know, if you could look back and say there there is a tipping point or an aha because you've had so many just inspirational moments. But is there something you look back to and say, this changed me for the better, or this is something I look back and go, wow, yeah, I'm glad I made this decision. I think my decision to go to Stanford and how that became a launching pad for the next big chunk of my life was probably a turning point. I remember distinctly, this is a long time ago, this is not (laughs) pre-computers, I did all my college applications on a typewriter. I was on my way back from a recruiting trip at Dartmouth, and we had a flight weather delay. And so I had to spend the night at this like Excalibur medieval, like motel (laughs) in Ohio. And I was all by myself. I traveled by myself. And it was like the night before the Stanford application was due. And I remember calling from a payphone in the airport, my brother saying, the envelope is all sealed and stamped. Please have mom put it in the mailbox. I've decided to go to Stanford. And that really feels like, you know, my experience at Stanford, the people that I became teammates and lifelong friends and really sisters, you know, with the professors that I continue to have a relationship with. I mean, I live so close to Stanford. I'm running on campus there almost every day. You know, that was just such a critical, um, I could have never understood the magnitude of that would have on my life going forward. And I think that really led to all the other, just moved me to Northern California and put me in Silicon Valley. And so that was really a critical turning point, I think, for me. Yeah, another guest I had on previously, uh, Pat Romano, he's the CEO for a company called ChargePoint, uh, the charging stations, and his answer was almost identical. I mean, with all his career uh, successes, he went back to education and where, you know, he went to to undergrad. And it is, I mean, if you look you look back that that decision, I mean, if you chose Dartmouth, I'm sure that you would have kept running, but there had been so many different avenues you could have gone to, right? And you wouldn't likely be sitting in Palo Alto today. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it's a whole, who knows how that would have taken on. And, and, you know, it's also a critical point in your life in general, right? You're moving out of your parents' home. I was moving out of my parents' home. I was going to be, you know, on my own for the first time trying to make my way. And so, but I think the Stanford component at that point in my life was, I'm just so grateful. And I'm, I'm a huge go card, go Stanford. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I wanted to get into some kind of fun rapid fire questions. If you're game. Let's do it. The first one is if you have one, a favorite quote, are there any quotes that kind of stick with you or sayings or uh, anything that you'd like to share with the audience? I'm a coach. So I have so many quotes. I, I have so many yeah. quotes. If my athletes were listening, they would I think the one that I I go to most frequently is every letter that my great grandmother wrote me, she would write, keep on keeping on, even from when I was a little kid. And so that's something that when I need a little pick me up or I'm feeling down, I just kind of go back to that anchor point and say, all right, we got to 
we got to gather up all our strength. We got to keep on keeping on. So that's something I, I say to myself often. That's a good one. There is, I just thought of one while you were mentioning keep on keeping on is, uh, uh, everything you ever wanted to know about yourself, you can learn in 26.2 miles. And I forgot, I forgot <laughs> who said that, but I've never done a full, I've done a lot of halves, frankly, but I can't imagine. I mean, you're fighting through so many things in that run. Um, that statement's probably pretty true. Yeah. It's a lot of time to be in your head. I mean, usually you're around people. I ran Boston almost a hundred percent by myself just because of where I ended up on the starting line. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of internal dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Was there any others coach? Any other quotes? The other one that my, the athletes and I say a lot is it's, uh, I think it's a Bill Parcells quote. It's, uh, it's basically no excuses. Don't expect anyone to do anything. You know, you got to pull yourself up. So it's something, expect nothing, do something like that. Got it. I should have it more on the top of my head, but uh, I like it because I feel like whenever you feel down or you feel like someone's doing something to you, it's like, you know what? No, I'm going to just take a breath and gather up and focus on this is, this is one that actually gets the same sentiment don't let what you can't do get in the way of what you can mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is a very hopeful quote to come back to when you feel like, you know, there's just all these impediments or roadblocks. It's like, well, what can I do? and not focus so much on what the roadblocks are. Right. My favorite, Bill Parcells has a ton. And my favorite Bill Parcells quote is, uh, success is never final, but failure can be. That's actually one I've I've never forgot. I I love that quote. He's got a lot. Those coaches like yourself, you got a lot of quotes that (laughs) stick to you. All right. So next question. So you have to get out of tech, out of running, out of coaching for that matter. But if you could choose a completely different profession, what would it be and why? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't get to coach. Yeah, right. I mean, I think about things that I'm not good at that I wish I could be good at. Like I don't, I'm not, I'm not musical. I cannot, I wish I had learned to play an instrument. So yeah, maybe something more in the arts or a writer. I, I do love to write. So maybe I could weave something with my writing and traveling the world and you know, doing reviews. I love to travel and experience new um, places. And I just went on a couple of uh, retreats recently. And that was really a good experience for me personally, but I'm also kind of just intrigued on like the business model there and how you pull together a really good retreat and like help people find, you know, peace. So maybe something more in the arts and travel area. Yeah. I mean, I think if you or anyone for that matter, the, the quote unquote, you really liked to travel before COVID, you really are finding out how much you miss travel now, right? Because I've heard, you know, others, you know, say, oh my God, you know, I was taking advantage of my time that I could have been traveling. And now, you know, once this thing is lifted, I think it's <laughs> the travel industry is going to explode. Yeah, I think people, we were just talking about this at work yesterday, actually, mm-hmm. uh, um, for employees who've been kind of stuck, you know, when this thing gets lifted, are people just going to want to take like long leaves of absence or vacations? And I mean, but I do think there's this, there's a set of people who have decided to move kind of temporarily for a long time too. And so we know I have a lot of folks who are, are in other, not at their, like their primary home, but they've moved to the mountains or other places. So yeah, we'll see. I, I, you know, let's all hope we can get there soon. I think we all are eager to get this behind us. I know it. Okay. Last one. This is the staple is the final dinner 
it is uh, a little morbid, but this is your final dinner. So we don't know what's happening tomorrow, but what is on your plate or plates and then in the glass, if you'd like to add that as well. <laughs> well, we're never promised tomorrow, so maybe we should all right? <laughs> just go get the pasta now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's something really comforting about a big plate of spaghetti bolognese, right? Just right? a nice, healthy, comforting dish of pasta and and um, of course, the glass, I need to um, find a really delicious uh, red wine to go with that. I am, I do fancy some red wine. So I love it. Sounds good. Well, this conversation has been awesome, to say the least. And I, I knew oh, it was going you. to be. Are there any kind of parting words for, for the audience you'd like to share, Shannon? <laughs> oh, I don't know if I have any parting words for everybody. But, you know, I do think with all that we're navigating right now, I've just been personally been thinking about how to really give yourself some grace and protect your energy and space. We're all living through a really different paradigm right now. And so, you know, try to just, you know, take a breath and, and give yourself and everyone around you a little bit of grace. I think it would um, help everyone navigate this a bit better. I agree. Well, thank you again so much for your time. And uh, I hope we talk again soon and good luck with all the races in the future. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I hope you all enjoyed and were inspired by that conversation with Shellin. You can find Shellin on LinkedIn at Shellin Full of. Her first name is spelled S-H-A-L-U-I-N-N. And you can find me at my website, RomyZade.com. That's www.romyzeid.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Until next time.